The year 2020, is it getting away from us? This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. On this episode, we're going to revisit some of the popular topics from 2020. We'll start back on January 17th, episode 301. Carol Hobson and Susan Perkins discussed a book they've edited, Murder and Mayhem in Herkimer County. Hobson and Perkins work for the Herkimer County Historical Society. Carol Hobson tells us their new book about Herkimer County was inspired by a book published in 1885. We wanted to write this book for a while. Something that's very popular in our library is a publication called Murders of Herkimer County. And this was written and published in 1885 by William H. Tippett. He was involved in the newspaper industry, and a very well-known murder happened in 1884 into 1885. That was the Roxolana Druce murder. And it caught everyone's attention, and Tippett's, was able to be there at the time that this was going on. And so he wrote about this murder in this book, but he came up with the idea to research all the previous murders that happened in Herkimer County, and he researched at the county records room, going through the court records. And this has always been a popular um, book that people like to look at, It's not available for sale. Um, So we always had the idea of reprinting that book. Mm -hmm. But what we did was we took a few cases that he wrote about in his book, and it goes up to 1885, and we continued it up to the 1930s with some new cases. And so that's what we did, Mm -hmm. and and it really is a, a nice little compilation of the murders and some sensational crimes as well in Herkimer mm-hmm. County. Now, you said that uh, Tippett's uh, was maybe prompted by uh, the story of Roxalana Drews, and I gather that you were involved in a play, uh, Roxy, written by Jack Sherman, who's one of the authors in your uh, this new book, but I don't yes. believe he wrote the... Did he write the Roxalana Drews story in this book? He actually didn't. We His name is Jack Sherman, and we know him. He was uh, involved with the DA's office, and he's a county judge um, in Tompkins County, retired now. And he was involved in a reenactment when he was in Herkimer County of the Chester Gillette mm-hmm. trial. Now, that's one of the most famous right. cases. We've yeah, we'll get to that one in, in a moment. Let's stick with sure, uh, Roxalana sure. Drews for right so, now. Uh, now, the, the point was, I mean, she killed her husband, her abusive husband, and I guess I'm getting to the point, and she was then hanged, and um, wasn't she the last woman to hang in New York State? She was in 1887, and he, we approached Jack Sherman to write a play about this case, and he did, and it's an excellent play. We performed it with the Illion Little Theater Company, to sell out crowds for each performance. And um, so we approached him to um, write about uh, doing a story for this book, but he's also involved with the Chester Gillette case, so he wrote a chapter on that instead of the Roxalana Drews case. Let me bring up another um, case that's in your book, 
and another kind of connection to you in particular. We're talking with Carol Hobson, one of the uh, co-editors of Murder and Mayhem in Herkimer County. You collaborated with Illion Little Theater, producing a play called Shattered Angel, written by Stephen Wagner, on a 1914 murder committed by a man named Gene Giannini. I believe in the book you have Dennis Webster who wrote about it. I know Dennis. In fact, I've interviewed him about, he had a previous book about uh, this murder case. Can you tell us about that particular case? Sure. Um, Yes, Dennis wrote a book on the case, and so that's why we approached him to write the chapter on that. Gene Giannini was a 16-year-old student who murdered his school teacher in the village of Poland, New York. And it was a sensational case because it was one of the first ones that imbecility was used as a defense, and it was a successful defense. Um, He was not um, charged with first-degree murder, which would have been a sentence of him being executed in the electric chair. He was sent away um, to Madawan State Prison for the insane, and he actually was in institutions all of his life, in, and he lived to his 80s. And um, it was all, he was in New York State the entire time. And by doing the play, we actually reached out to some family members, um, two nieces of Jean, who one of them came to the play, and they shared pictures with us that we had never seen before of Jean's father and some other pictures. And nobody ever knew where he was buried. Um, and the niece finally did find out where Jean is buried um, in the New York City area. And she's going, and it's an unmarked grave, and she and her daughter hmm. are going to lay a, a wreath at his grave. And I thought that was nice. Another chapter in the book, Murder and Mayhem in Herkimer County, describes the death of Grace Brown and the trial of Chester Gillette which became one of the most famous criminal cases in the country, inspiring Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy. Moving on in this highlight edition of the Historian's Podcast, on February 28th, episode 307, debuted Professor Peter Ward exploring the history of personal cleanliness over the past 400 years in Europe and North America. Ward, an emeritus professor in British Columbia, Canada, is author of the book, The Clean Body. Well, it's a, it's a personal story, actually, because when I was uh, beginning my career as, a, as I was still a graduate student in history, I interviewed my grandfather for uh, a kind of a pioneers of the Western Canadian, uh, early, early Western Canadian development. And uh, he told me about his life, uh, and one of the things he just remarked in passing was the fact that growing up in eastern Canada, he only had two baths a year. Uh, Well, he he wasn't uh, uh, anything other than as clean as the rest of us when I knew him, uh, but uh, he obviously had a different past than I had, and I became curious about that. I just wondered what that was all about. and. I didn't spend much time thinking about it initially, but uh, over the years I've thought a lot about it. And then uh, toward the end of my career, I began to think about um, uh, seeing what I could find out about the history of personal hygiene. So that's where the book came from. The Clean Body surveys this uh, great uh, transformation that took place 
specifically in Europe and North America. That's what you cover in your book. That's right, right yes. Why, why not the whole world? Is it just because it's bigger or <laughs> whatever? Uh, it's bigger and a lot more complicated because uh, there are a lot more environments, uh, a lot more cultural differences, a lot, a lot of very complicated cultural practices. Just just to choose one example, the, the very well-known case of, uh, of Japanese bathing habits, the Japanese onsen, uh, which is... Uh, a deeply, deeply embedded practice in Japanese history, um, and it's a very different set of practices than than we uh, we're familiar with. Really, I, I mean, it makes me ask you, though it's not in your book. I mean, what, what is it the Japanese do differently? Well, the Japanese have this wonderful hot bath called an onsen, and uh, it's. Uh, it's just uh, I've been to Japan. I've, I've used the onsen a few times. Uh, normally, the Japanese public bath has a, a male and a female side, so you don't wear anything at all. Uh, but before you get into the bath, you have to wash yourself, uh, and you clean yourself. Uh, at least in the places I've been, just by sitting on a little tiny stool by a tap when you're getting on a little plastic basin, and you wash a bit of soap, and you wash yourself from top to bottom so that you're clean when you go into the bath. Okay. And then you go into the bath itself. It's really, really hot, and you soak as long as you can, and you get out, and you're done. It's huh. Terrific. How about that? Now, you also uh, limit yourself, you know, in terms of how far back you go. You go back to the 1600s. Uh, That's right. I mean, the, the Romans bathed, right? Didn't they? They had baths. Oh, yes. The Romans had, and we see the remains of the baths when we go to Rome these days and lots of other places in the Roman Empire as well. But I just decided that uh, that was too big a stretch. Uh, one of the things about uh, books and the book reading public is that uh, they don't have an appetite for huge, long books anymore. That's not the 19th century. And so I was trying to write uh, a kind of a succinct and... Uh, focused study, uh, and so I chose the last, basically the last 400 years, well, almost half of which was really the period of the, the big transition, so I wanted the, the earlier period to act as a contrast. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the earlier period. You uh, write, I mean, more than of just two men, but you do write about two men from the 1600s and their personal cleanliness. King uh, Louis XIV of France and uh, the British bureaucrat, and, and who wrote a diary that's a fascinating work of literature, a man named Samuel Pepys. Now, Louis XIV of uh, France lived 1638 to 1715. He only had two known baths in his 77 years? That's right, yes. Yeah. I, I expected he was washed off when he was a little baby, uh, uh, as an infant, but, um, but really... And, and, in terms of what you and I think of as a bath, he only had two. And the first was when he was 27, and the other was a year or two later. And, uh, they were medicinal baths. They were not uh, baths to make him clean. Uh, their doctor, his doctors ordered them. He, he had, uh, I think, uh, some form of, if not epilepsy, he, had, he was subject to fits, and they thought that a bath might help him out. Huh. So they popped him in the bath, and on the first occasion, uh, it didn't go very well. He got a bad headache, and so they took him out and dried him off and put him to bed for the rest of the day. Uh, and two years later, they had pretty much the same results, and so he gave up bathing. Huh. But He washed himself. He washed his face and hands. He did? Uh, he did, yes. I think hands once a day and face every, day, every couple of days, but... Uh, that was about it, as far 
as we know. Professor Ward says the English bureaucrat and diary author Samuel Pepys writes about being told to bathe by his wife if he wanted to join her in the marriage bed. Mrs. Pepys had had one of those medicinal baths, similar to what happened to King Louis the Fourteenth. so Samuel Pepys had one too. Peter Ward's book is called The Clean Body. On March 27, 2020, we debuted Historian's Podcast Episode 311. Catherine Smith is a journalist from South Carolina, author of Gertie, The Fabulous Life of Gertrude Sanford Lejeune, heiress, explorer, socialite, spy. Was Gertie ahead of her time? Gertie was just, uh, her, her longtime secretary described her to me as a woman who was a feminist before anyone knew what that was. <laughs> and she just did things that women didn't do. Um, I think the, the first big one was leading scientific expeditions into to jungles and deserts and all that. It just didn't occur to her that she shouldn't be able to do the same thing the men did. And really, um, well into her 50s, she was she would go on these expeditions and would be the only woman in the company. So um, she had a lot of money. Uh, she was used to getting her own way. And if she got in her head, she wanted to do something. <laughs> by gum, she was going to do it. <laughs> I guess. Now, I'm, I'm familiar with the connection between uh, Gertie Ellen Sanford Lejeune and my hometown of Amsterdam, New York. We'd like to mm-hmm. start with that. She wasn't even born in Amsterdam, although the Amsterdam Sanfords obviously came from Amsterdam. Where was she born? Well, I think she was born uh, almost by accident in Aiken, South Carolina, because uh, because of the Sanfords' horse interest. They came to Aiken every winter, and it was uh, it was what was called the Winter Colony, and it was a lot of wealthy Northerners who had horses, or else they just enjoyed um, the sporting life, and they came down for a few months and played golf and tennis and went riding and, you know, falling off horses and breaking their necks while fox hunting and that kind of thing. Okay. But she did spend some uh, time growing up in uh, Amsterdam, South Carolina, New York City, elsewhere. Yeah, Yeah, all those places. Their family just kind of drifted a a bit. Um, Now, her grandfather had a home in Amsterdam. That was Stephen Sanford. So the family would live with him part of the year. Uh, They had a small home in New York City, and later they... Her father bought a mansion there. Um, they would go to Bar Harbor or Newport in the summer. They went to Europe a lot. Um, so just really the first time they had a, a really definitely base um, was when Mr. Sanford bought a, a home um, near Central Park. Uh, nice little place. Belongs to the Emir of Qatar today. Right. <laughs> so it was quite the, quite the mansion, really. Quite the mansion, yeah. Well, from, from for our upstate New York sensibilities, they lived in what we, we think of as a mansion, uh, both Stephen Sanford and then his son John, who was Gertrude, Gertrude's father, father. which uh, mm-hmm. built a building they ultimately gave to the city when they kind of decided they were not going to stay in Amsterdam much anymore. Right, and it's your city hall today, correct? correct? It's the city yeah. hall. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I think that when Stephen Sanford died, John felt that it was time to 
to move on to New York where everything was happening. And if you were anybody, that's where you were supposed to live. And his wife, who was um, born and raised in Europe, her father was a, a diplomat, American diplomat in Europe, really liked the, um, the culture that New York offered. She loved the opera. She loved theater. She wanted. Uh, she brought Arthur Rubinstein in to do a private concert for her guests. That kind of thing. So she really reveled in being a, a in a big city uh, mm. for a change and raised her children to have an appreciation for the arts. And they were both named Sanford. I mean, her maiden name was Sanford, right? She was. Yeah, their um, their grandfathers were brothers. So she was a cousin. And I've um, my conclusion, which I have heard from the the people in Sanford, Florida, where John and and, uh, Ethel Sanford were married, was that she was sort of, it was sort of an arranged marriage. Um, Her father had gone bankrupt, and they were debt collectors after her, her widowed mother from Europe, so they came to Florida, where he had a house and had tried to start orange groves, and Mr. Sanford, John Sanford, was quite a bit older. I think her mother was 19. He was 41. He wanted to get married and have have heirs. So they sort of arranged the marriage, and it was not a a very successful match. But they did have three children. Mm. Right. And um, she was... Uh, the young uh, youngest, wasn't she? The youngest of the three. I think he looked over the three daughters and picked her. <laughs> yeah, kind of sad, but um, that's that's how she got. They, you know, at least addressed financial problems, and he helped helped her mother out um, with uh, her living expenses. And um, so John and Ethel get married. They're both they're both Sanfords. And they have mm-hmm. th- these three uh, children, another mm-hmm. Stephen, although he's called mm-hmm. Laddie, and, mm-hmm. and Mary uh, Jane, I believe, like mm-hmm. her, her mother, uh, and then uh, uh, Gertrude. Uh, yeah. I-, I love the pictures in uh, your your book. In that Aren't they cute? <laughs> they are. I mean, they're very pretty or something. I, I've seen a lot yeah. of, because of his role in the development of Amsterdam, New York, and uh, I've seen a lot of pictures of Stephen Sanford, but I'm looking mm. at your pictures that occurred to me. I'd never seen his shoes. Yeah. And, and one of your pictures. There, little sailor outfits and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm talking about the old Stephen Sanford. Oh, the old Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Uh, and you, you see his, I don't know, he, and he didn't look like he was very tall. I don't really know if that was yeah, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Gertie was captured by the Nazis in Europe during World War II when she worked for the agency that preceded the CIA. She escaped from the Nazis and lived many years, lived lavishly, at a mansion in South Carolina. Catherine Smith's book is Gertie, The Fabulous Life of Gertrude Sanford Lejeune. On April 10th, episode 313 on The Historians, we heard from White House historian Matthew Costello, author of The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. When George Washington died, he was buried at Mount Vernon, his plantation in Virginia. Was his death expected? Well, I mean, at that point in time, Washington was 67 years old. Um, and I think people who had seen him uh, in the last years after he retired, after he left the presidency, I mean, certainly he would have looked 
all of 67. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, serving the country for eight years during the war, uh, returning for the Constitutional Convention, eight years of the presidency, um, you know, they had really taken their toll on Washington. And, uh, but I think also, you know, it was one of those things where there had been so many legends and stories built up around him. You know, he had he had had uh, horses shot out from underneath him. He had bullets go through his coat, uh, almost like he was going to live forever. And uh, so I think many Americans were pretty shocked uh, when they heard that George Washington had passed away. Mm. And his wife Martha lived until 1802. But after her husband died, she was beset by, wasn't she, by many people who literally and figuratively uh, wanted a piece of George Washington after he died. How did she handle these requests? Well, for the most part, Martha would only reply to letters that were, I think, close friends, family members, because she did get a lot of of letters from political leaders, uh, people who knew her husband, but then also strangers who were asking for all sorts of things. Uh, there was a group of sisters from Rhode Island who asked for a lock of Washington's hair. Uh, there was another gentleman who asked her to write a pardon uh, to the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, Thomas McKee, for a pardon on his behalf because, according to him, he had been mistakenly uh, accused of horse stealing. Uh, there's another gentleman who wants to do a full-length portrait of Washington, but he wants to request one of Washington's suits uh, so that his model can can wear it for uh, the painting. So I think with those types of requests, Martha either directly didn't respond or she passed them along to Tobias Lear, who was Washington's private secretary. He was handling a lot of the correspondence. Mm-hmm. There was this very uh, touching letter from Abigail Adams, who to some extent had been there and done that. I mean, she, too, had been the second First Lady. And, uh, uh, well, anyway, and Martha responded to her. Yeah, and, you know, Martha didn't reply to many letters. And uh, and as everybody probably knows, you know, she also burned uh, her and her husband's correspondence. I think there's only three letters that have survived today uh, between George and Martha. So um, she was a very private person. And uh, and if she wrote a response to you, I mean, I, I think that, that also suggests that she truly valued her friendship with that person. And I think Abigail Adams, there was a shared kinship, uh, you know, both being first ladies of the United States. After he died, Washington, I believe you write this, became a commodity. Can you talk about that? One of the, the overarching points that I make in the book is that, you know, Washington for the most part, really had command of his legacy and his reputation while he was alive. It was something that he guarded very carefully, and uh, he gave a lot of thought about things that he did, how they would be perceived, uh, because he knew that you know his examples were going to live on beyond his time. And when he's gone, there are all these different efforts then uh, to transform the memory, capitalize on the memory, and profit from the memory. And when I say that Washington became a commodity, you know, you think of anything with Washington's face on it, Um, you know, flasks, snuff boxes, walking Mm -hmm. sticks, uh, things that were directly taken from Mount Vernon. Uh, There becomes this whole market of of people who want Washington uh, regalia and memorabilia, and, and there's businessmen there's uh, enslaved storytellers, even Washington's own family members sort of step into that void and start offering people the opportunity to purchase 
a piece of Washington's world. Mm. You write that uh, George Washington was an affluent slave owner who believed that republicanism, a representative form of government, was the way to go, not just real democracy. And he also a great believer in social hierarchy and, and rules uh, that were vital to the country's uh, survival. That's not, I mean, but somehow that was what Washington was, but the idea of what he was has changed over the years? From Washington's perspective, uh, and, and he and many of the other founders believed this, that when the country was founded as a republic, that, um, you know, select citizens should really be charged with governing for all. Uh, so not really like a democracy as we know it today, uh, more like a republic where really uh, the best and the brightest citizens are the ones who are tasked more with those types of responsibilities. And I think with Washington, you know, he had seen experiences with state constitutions that experimented with democracy and things had gotten out of hand, uh, you know, places like Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, uh, but also even abroad with the French Revolution uh, and seeing how democracy can quickly spiral out of control and, uh, and can lead to chaos, violence, bloodshed, war. And, uh, you know, Washington was very vigilant against these, these forces, these things that could threaten the country that he helped create. And uh, an outright democracy was one of those threats. But as the country democratized in the 19th century, as more and more people were brought into the political fold and they had more say over their representatives, their government, um, you know, they also had more say in their history uh, and what it meant to them. And Washington becomes this figure, this this father of democracy, which I think he probably would have been slightly uncomfortable with that title. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Jefferson probably would have preferred the title. But in the 19th century, Americans are, are looking to the symbol uh, of, of, you know, the citizen to emulate. And Washington transforms into this this man of democracy. Matthew Costello's book is The Property of the Nation. Our last excerpt in this highlight production debuted May 2nd, episode 319. Christy Sousa, a skater herself, author of Lake Placid Figure Skating, A History. It started around 1904, and the Lake Placid Club at that time was a summer resort, and the Lake Placid Club was very popular in Lake Placid um, with educators and intellectuals and at the time they decided to stay open that winter of 1904 to 1905 and only about 10 people were there one of whom was Henry Van Hovenberg and it was so popular and so well received that they decided they would keep the winter season as well going forward and they told their friends and more people started coming to Lake Placid, so Lake Placid went from being a primarily summer destination to being a winter sports destination as well, and there weren't that many places that had that designation back then. Now, uh, I certainly have heard the name because something's named for him up there, but who was Henry Van Hovenberg? He was an outdoor adventurer. He was very involved with hiking and basically all the outdoor activities and he obviously was acquaintances with Melville Dewey, who is the founder of the Lake Placid Club. So he was one of the people that was sort of recruited to try out the winter season, from what my research suggests. And obviously they had a good time, so it became 
more of a, a winter pastime to come to Lake Placid and enjoy all the winter activities. And you also mentioned now Melville Dewey. He and his son were uh, instrumental in uh, both the development of winter sports and in the Olympics, although uh, Melville Dewey was uh, long gone by then. Melville Dewey was the man who created the Dewey Decimal System, right? But Yes. Yeah, and why did he, I mean, he went up to Lake Placid because it was a nice place to go. I mean, he just liked, I can't imagine he was originally from Lake Placid, or was he? No, he came here because he found that the mountain air, like so many people found at that time, helped his allergies. And uh, he ended up coming to Lake Placid and seeing that it would be a nice place to visit and sort of relax after the city. That's Christy Souza author of Lake Placid Figure Skating, A History. Thanks for joining us on this highlight version of the Historian's Podcast, some of our episodes from 2020. Do remember our GoFundMe campaign. There's a link to that on our website, bobcudmore.com. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. 